It's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to to be preaching to uh, an audience that just continues to grow and grow and grow every week. We may be the fastest growing church in Brazos County, actually. I don't know. Um, but a few few more folks joining us every week as we get our heads more and more around safety protocol. And, and so we praise God for that. Still have several folks joining us online, and we're so glad that you all are tuning in as well. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be diving into that text here in just a few moments. As you're turning there, I want to share with you three desired outcomes for our time together this morning. Uh, One is to preach the text. And not just to preach the text, but to preach the text, hopefully and prayerfully in a way that challenges you to live into the truth of this text. At the end of our time together, I'm going to come back up and share an appeal related to a volunteer opportunity, and then I have another announcement at the end about uh, our future. And so those three pens we want to try to knock down today (laughs) in a good way uh, as we spend these next few moments together. Uh, It's been a great week for our church, and I know it's very, very difficult to to be able to share every single thing that God is doing through you, whether it's your family or your ministry. But a couple of things happened this week that were just so special, I could not not share them with you. Uh, on Wednesday this, this week, we had an opportunity to help someone in our community move out of her apartment and into another apartment. So five or six men from our church got together and went uh, to an upstairs apartment to move out and to another upstairs apartment to move in. Not so bad if you're an Aggie for Christ uh, when you're in your 50s, 60s, and 70s, as uh, those of us in the group were, a little bit more challenging. But it was so sweet to see so many smiles. And for this uh, lady who we met, we were able to help for her to look at us and say, God has just been so good to me. And she meant, because of what was going on, And that was only made possible because of you as a church. Yesterday, we said goodbye to our brother, John Ray. It was a beautiful memorial service. A lot of you know John and Bernice. Many of you know uh, Brian and Becca. One of the things that was so awesome about the memorial yesterday was to see how present and how involved their small group was. And not just at the service, but if you've known anything about John's situation in the past six, seven, eight months, particularly as his health declined, the small group just kept being there and being there and being there. And it was just beautiful. It's how the body of Christ is supposed to function, I think. And I think that'll make even more sense when we get into our text today. After first assembly, someone said to me, dude, you went really deep today. So hang on, okay? We're going to let the text take us as deep as we can allow the text to take us in our humanity. But I hope you'll be encouraged. I hope you'll be challenged. Above all else, I hope you'll choose to take the truths that we're going to look at this morning and you'll choose to live them out faithfully as you walk um, with our Lord and Savior Jesus. So our sermon this morning is entitled, Imagers of God, and that is not a misprint. 
Uh, it is imagers, and I'll say a little bit more about that later on. Uh, we are in a series of lessons on being peacemakers. We're in a season of invitation. Remember, this is a time to invite family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors to engage. If they don't feel comfortable being here physically, then give them links to our website. Invite them to, to pop over and, and uh, share uh, online church together or uh, just send them the links and say, hey, I want you to take a listen to this. Uh, our church is in a season of inviting people to come and, and be part of what God's doing here. I thought Kelly did an incredible job the last two Sundays in particular with Romans 14. And if you haven't heard those lessons, I encourage you to go back. Uh, go to our YouTube channel, pull those up. It was an incredible deep dive in the text. Kelly, thank you for those messages. A great foundation to this series on being peacemakers. This morning, I want us to go all the way back to the beginning, to the very foundation of peacemaking, the creation of humankind. So I want to ask you to take your Bibles, and, and as we look in Genesis chapter 1, as we read this text, you're going to notice some highlighted words that are extremely important because... These words reveal to us God's original intention for mankind. And this is very, very important, church. This intention did not change after the fall. It was God's intention. It is still God's intention. And I think that will make more sense as we dig into Scripture. Genesis 1, beginning at verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind, and I'd like to ask you to say the words with me that are circled as we go along, okay? Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Say it with me. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, I just want to ask you to take just a couple of moments and dwell on that one key phrase in verse 28. It's repeated twice in Hebrew. And by the way, anytime something is repeated twice in Hebrew, it means, hey, pay very close attention to this. This is extremely important. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them. And so the question before us this morning is, what does being made in his image have to do with being a peacemaker. 
Well, to answer that question, we are going to turn to the ultimate source of authority, the Internet. It's on there. It's true, right? Of course, we know that's not true. The ultimate source of authority is, of course, God's Word. But there are some things on the Internet that are, that are really good. And one of the things on there right now that's really good is a series of videos entitled The Bible Project. If you haven't heard of this, I would encourage, encourage you to go on YouTube, look up The Bible Project, wonderful videos um, that in, in, in very brief form showcase Everything from books of the Bible to various topics that we read about in Scripture. And one of the videos that they have created is simply entitled, The Image of God. And what I'd like to do this morning is just let this video set up for us the context in which Genesis 1 is written. So if you'll please turn your attention to the video screens. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. And many of these kings claimed that they were gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called tselem, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right, and that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the Creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of Himself. When did He do that? Let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans. And he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day -day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering 
and a lot of injustice. So maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus' resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus' divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So Practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus' own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. I actually love how that video ends because the line is the rest of the story and that's the part that we play in the rest of the story. So as I, as I saw this video for the first time, there were a couple of questions that really uh, leapt off the, off the screen at me and the first is, uh, so how are we supposed to rule? The second is, are we going to use our authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are we going to turn away and define good and evil for ourselves? So I want to start this morning by examining the first question, how are we all supposed to rule? And to begin answering that question, we need to have a conversation about the word in, in the phrase, in his image. Now, in is a really, really small word, I-N. It occurs in various forms over 11,000 times in the Bible. So pretty incredible, really. It has all sorts of different uses, and we're not going to have time to go into all of those this morning. But in the English language, there are several different ways that we know we can use it. For example, it can refer to an unspecified time 
or date or season. So she always listens to the news in the morning. I didn't give a specific time, but we just gave a general range in the morning. It can be used to indicate a location or a place we are all in the auditorium. It can be used to express a belief or an opinion or an interest or a feeling. From our perspective as believers, we would say, I believe in Jesus. Now, these are certainly not the only uses of the word in, but hopefully you get the idea. And so while this is true in English, it is also true in Hebrew. So if we look in Scripture, we can see in when it is used as a preposition, uh, for example, describing location. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. In can also refer to result in Hebrew. And so Jeremiah 23, verse 29, for example, uh, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Do you see the result of the word of God on the rock? In Hebrew, in can also denote one's role or uh, purpose in a specific field. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, we have a list of many of the mighty men who fought alongside David. In verse 21, we see a particular group of men who are described. They helped David against the band of raiders, for they were all mighty men of valor, and they were commanders in the army. And so if you would have asked one of these mighty men, so what do you do for a living? They might have replied, I am in the military. And you might not know their rank. You might not know their specific purpose, but you know enough about them to understand the greater purpose that they're about. Now we're starting to get to the heart of what the Hebrew word in means in the phrase in his image. You see, people may look at us and believers, and they may not know specifics, but they should clearly know the greater purpose for what we are about. So my question for us this morning is, do we know the greater purpose for what we are about? If your answer to that question is, yes, I do, then praise the Lord. If your answer to that question is, I'm not sure, or no, I don't know, guess what? You're in the right place. Because Scripture is about to tell us what our greater purpose is. According to Michael Heiser, who is the author of a book entitled The Unseen Realm, Discovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. By the way, it is not lightweight reading, okay? If you want to purchase a copy, I encourage you to do that. But it's going to be, if you're like me, reading several pages over and over and over again to understand where he's coming from. But he provides some great insight on what the word in describes in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, specifically when we think about that last example of being in the army, of knowing the greater purpose. He writes, humankind was created as God's image. If we think of imaging as a verb or function, that translation makes sense. Not so much in God's image, 
as, as God's image. We are created to image God, to be His imagers. It's what we are by definition. The image is not an ability we have, but a status. We are God's representatives on earth. To be human is to image God. That's why Genesis 1, 26 through 27 is followed by what theologians call the dominion mandate in verse 28. The verse informs us that God intends us to be him on this planet. We are to create more imagers, be fruitful, multiply, fill. In order to oversee the earth by stewarding its resources and harnessing them for the benefit of all human imagers. Subdue, rule over. So, according to what we've learned about this passage this morning so far, what's a definition of an imager? An imager is someone who represents God on earth, makes more imagers. In our covenant with Christ, that's called making disciples and stewards all resources of God for the benefit of others. I can't begin to describe for you how important it is that we understand this. This, this connects to our very DNA as human beings. And before it was our DNA... It was the very DNA of God. This is an inherited trait that we have from our Father. Before it was our inherited trait, it was the DNA of Jesus himself. I want you to notice what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He says, the Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the first imager of the Father. He is the firstborn over all creation. This DNA was passed along to humankind during creation. Being an imager of God, it is an inherited trait. It's a trait that we share with our brother Jesus. Paul describes it this way in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You starting to see the dots connecting here? Are you starting to see how the New Testament writers understood the original purpose, that greater purpose for which all of us were here to be imagers of God on this earth? It's not the end of it. There's, there's more. Scripture clearly reveals to us what happens when we embrace our intended purpose as imagers. And it also shows us what happens when we don't. One of the best examples of this is in James chapter 3. I want to start reading at verse 13. We're going to read through verse 18. I'm going to pause a little bit for commentary as we get into some of these verses. James asks, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Okay, interesting question. Where does wisdom come from? Hang on, he's about to tell us. Before he gets there, he says, but if you harbor 
bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, quote-unquote, James interjects a little bit of humor here. It's not wisdom. That kind of wisdom, that doesn't come down from heaven, but it's earthly. No, 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 that's not even enough to describe it. It's unspiritual. No, that's not even enough to describe it. It is, it is downright demonic, James says. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Can I get an oh yeah? We've seen that, right? In our very own culture, we're seeing it played out all over the place right now. Envy and selfish ambition is the opposite of how imagers of God are designed to function. Envy is defined as a feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to another's advantages or successions or possessions, etc. Well, what's the opposite of envy? Well, there are several opposites, but the first one that pops, if you look at antonyms of envy, is the word generosity. And that is at the very heart and ministry of Jesus. James shows what this looks like lived out behaviorally in the body of Christ as he continues, but the wisdom that comes from heaven going all the way back to the original intention, because who rules heaven? Hopefully you know the answer to the question. God, right? Jesus co-rules with God. He is at his right hand. The wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, not stained at all, not even a single blemish, because the wisdom that comes from heaven is of God. And I want you to notice the very, very first characteristic the first one in the queue that describes the wisdom of God, it is peace-loving. It's considerate. It's submissive. We see this modeled in Jesus as he was willing to lay down his life for us. It's full of mercy and good fruit. A little bit of gardening language there. It's impartial and sincere. And I want you to see this exclamation point on the end of this section. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Isn't it fascinating that James uses gardening language to describe what happens when the imagers of God live for the benefit of others? It's like he's calling us back to God's original intentions. It's like he's calling us back to subdue the earth, not by military might, not by coercion, but through peace-loving, good fruit. And church, this doesn't happen passively. Sometimes I think we do harm to the text. We read something like we're made in God's image, and we go, oh, that's nice. This is such transformative truth that we've got to hang out here. We have got to try to understand what this means to be in his image because in this phrase, it reveals the very purpose, the greater purpose for why we're on this planet. Paul gives us some additional insight, I think, in Colossians chapter 3. I just want to start reading in verse 5. 
He shows us how that we can live into being imagers by warning us about those things that we've got to, we've got to make sure that we're pushing out of us. We're allowing ourselves to be filled with God's Holy Spirit even as we empty ourselves of these things. He says, put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, uh, which is what? Idolatry. And what's an idol? It's a false image, right? It's not a true image of God. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And we don't like to read passages about the wrath of God anymore. We want to cut those out of our Bibles. We don't want to have to deal with the wrath of God. But God is coming to reclaim what is rightfully His, ultimately. Evil is going to be done away with as God restores his original intention. And I don't, want you, I don't know about you, but I want, to, I, want to be part of, I want to be part of that party, right? I want to be part of that celebration. When that which is originally intended is rightfully restored. Paul says, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you also must rid yourself of such things as these. Anger, rage, malice slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't, don't lie to each other. You've taken off your old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, say it with me, in the image of its creator. Paul continues, he says, Therefore, because you know this, because you understand what it means to be an imager of God. As God's chosen people, holy people, dearly loved people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another. Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord gave you. And over all these virtues, put on love. That binds them all together in perfect unity. Some of us go into our closets in the morning and we look at our, our wardrobe and we ask, what am I going to put on today? Of course, those of you who are really, really OCD laid it out the night before and it's on your counter and it's ready to go. But, but for many of us, we walk into our closets and we say, what am I going to put on today? What am I going to wear? Well, in the closet of God, when we, when we start our day and we think about, Lord, what character characteristics of you am I going to put on my person today? Paul gives us the wardrobe right here. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, truth. And I want you to notice how he sums up this section of his letter to the church in Colossae when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Church, do you see, you see how it comes full circle? If we are to be the imagers that God designed us to be, we have to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And this can only happen when we live as we were designed to live as imagers of God. And who is an imager of God? An imager of God represents God on earth. 
An imager of God makes more imagers. We are purposefully about discipleship. And an imager of God stewards all resources of God for the benefit of others. You see, when we live as we were designed to live, then we answer the question that we posed earlier. Are we going to use our authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are we going to turn away and define good and evil for ourselves? According to the text, imagers of God live for the benefit of others. You might be in a place in your life where you, you may say, I just don't know what to do. I'm in a place in my life where I don't, I don't know what to do. And I think there are going to be times and seasons for every single one of us where that's going to be the case. But as imagers of God, we always know what to do at the highest level. And that is to be garden people. People who plant seeds, people who work the ground, and people who share in the joys of the harvest. We're going to share a song together. We're going to share communion together. I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you to write this message and own it deep in your hearts and make a commitment every day of the rest of your life to be an imager of God. Let's meditate on this beautiful old hymn, the words, as we uh, write this message on our hearts. I'll come back up in just a bit and share a few more thoughts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride forbidden Lord that I should boast save in the death Oh. Uh-huh.